Hi, Cherise here with a special announcement. You can now enjoy select episodes of Detailed in video form. That's right. Detailed is now available on RCAT's YouTube channel. Now, you may be thinking, I already listened to the podcast. No need to watch it on YouTube. Well, trust me, if you don't want to miss out, even if you're an avid listener of the podcast, the video format is a completely different experience. Not only is it like hanging out with us, but you also get to hear parts of the conversation that were left on the cutting room floor. You can also see the photos, drawings, and video as we discuss the incredible projects that are featured. Come join us on YouTube. Follow the link in our show notes, and let's get into the details. This is an original podcast by RCAT. Try the number one most used website for finding building product information and save time and money. No registration is required with RCAT, so try it today and get ahead on your next project. Visit RCAT.com. That's A-R-C-A-T dot com. Visit RCAT.com forward slash podcast to see photos, details, and more related project and product information that we discussed today. This is Detailed, an original podcast by RCAT. I am your host, Sharice Lakeside, Senior Specification Writer at RDH Building Science and fondly known as the CSI Kraken. We will speak with professionals who share their insights into the most complex, interesting, and odd building conditions and the ingenuity it took to make it work. Join me as I pull back the curtain on the building industry and uncover the lessons learned. You'll gain valuable knowledge to help you better navigate your next project. Welcome to Detailed. My guest today is my very good friend, Mr. Jake Lamana. CSI CDT. Jake is the Quality Assurance Manager at Walsh Construction here in Portland, Oregon. Jake is also a fellow Portland CSI member, a Portland CSI board member, and jokingly, my self-appointed dad, as he and his wife, Allie, have decided I need parents to supervise me. Jake is a father to beautiful little William and has been participating in that gig for about six months now. I got to see him last night. He is the husband, partner to his amazing wife, Allie, married for the last six years together for 13. Jake has been the quality manager with Walsh for the last seven years and worked in a variety of architecture firms for several years prior to that. He crossed to the dark side. Jake has a Master's of Architecture degree from the University of Oregon, a Bachelor's from Vanderbilt University, and is originally from Wyoming. Jake has volunteered with the Portland Chapter of CSI in various capacities since 2013. On the weekends, he is a gentleman farmer at the family farm, which is a gorgeous place, by the way, who enjoys winding down with two fingers of Stranahan's Colorado whiskey, one rock. Definitely my kind of friend. I also have to add that Jake and Allie, both originally architecture graduates now working in construction, are two of the absolute best human beings that I know, even if they do a not very good job of supervising me. 
We are going to talk today about the PAE living building enclosure as well as other high-performance enclosures and how Walsh works diligently to transfer that knowledge to their affordable collegiate and senior housing projects. I'm ashamed to say I don't know more about this building since it's a building here in town, although I've heard about it for quite some time. Tell me about the PAE living building. It was uh, designed to last 500 years. It produces 105% of the energy it is using on site. And it does that through a mix of on site and off site renewable energy that the building paid for to be built on an off site location and on the roof of the building itself. It's interesting that they were able to achieve that much solar on the building itself because if you walked by it, it's in a historic district in Portland. They wouldn't allow you to see those solar panels. So this had different requirements and stipulations. It also achieves 73% of its water savings over the building code uh, before rainwater harvesting. And then the roof itself is designed and the materials were selected such that it could create potable water from the roof. We'll also talk with Mark Bruni, principal at PAE and project manager on the PAE Living Building Project, as well as Justin Brooks, principal at ZGF Architects. My name is Mark Bruni. I'm a mechanical engineer and principal at PAE. And for the PAE Living Building Project, I was our project manager and deeply involved with the project basically from the very start through design, through construction, and now in trying to get it uh, commissioned and everything uh, working exactly the way it's supposed to. PAE is a, you know, is a mission-driven organization. And, you know, our vision is to help solve the planet's energy and water challenges. And, you know, it's a critical thing through, you know, all that we do. And we, and we do that through the design of buildings for mechanical, electrical, plumbing engineers. And, uh, you know, and we try and bring that vision of sustainability to all of our projects. You know, we kind of realized that we had an opportunity with our office lease coming to an end, you know, to potentially do something different and to live our values. So that was really the inception of it was just thinking about, can we actually build a a home for ourselves, for our headquarters to the absolute highest level of sustainability, you know, that is out there on the market today, which is the Living Building Challenge. Justin Brooks, principal at ZGF. You know, where the building sits, its physical site has some bearing on what gives it the promise of such a long lifespan, and that's that it sits in an existing and protected historic district in the city of Portland. And so from a zoning and and sort of land use value standpoint, its density is, it's fixed, right? And so a a higher, maybe more profitable use is, is perhaps less likely to pressure a change on the site. And I think that was an important part of the decision-making in selecting that site, along with other implications being ability to capture natural light in, in lower density, you know, lower building height there, views, etc. But expanding on that, sort of sitting within this historic district from a design standpoint, the longevity will come from the timelessness of its design, its aesthetic design, which is really couched and rooted in foundational compositional principles around proportions, relationships of solid void, the golden section, if you will, the Fibonacci cycle in creating the facade and the appearance of the building, which is relates strongly to the historic context, but it also relates 
back to the ancient architects, to the Greeks, to the Romans, to the Italianate architecture. And so as an aesthetic approach, it's something proportionally that I think it's both physically in us, you know, how our bodies are made and built, right? Those sort of, sort of proportional systems, and we inherently find them beautiful. And so with the changing of architectural style over time, our hope is that there's something timeless about this building in its expression and its articulation, its composition, and also in its materiality that lets it really weather that long test. It is absolutely fantastic. I, uh, I like it better than I thought I would, and I had high hopes for it. <laughs> you know, we designed uh, with a radiant floor system, so all the, the heating and the cooling is in the radiant floor. And one of the things that required to make that work is that we looked at the design as an integrated system. And so we worked with Justin and his team to make sure that the loads from the sun and sort of the climate outside were really low because that radiant system doesn't have the same capacity, you know, the same horsepower like kind of a typical HVAC system. And so we designed these really low loads. We paid attention to the loads inside the space and made those really small also. So, you know, very efficient lighting system. The lights act, actually add a lot of heat, uh, you know, efficient equipment in the space. And so you have this space that has really low loads. The radiant floor then handles all of it and it creates a really even heat. And it is just exceptionally comfortable because of those two things. You don't have these asymmetries that can cause uh, discomfort. You know, visually when you're in the space, because the system gets hidden away. You know, the, there's ductwork in there for ventilation, but it's very small because it's just ventilation air. It doesn't have to provide, you know, you don't need more air for heating and cooling. So the ductwork in the ceiling is very small and everything else is just kind of tucked away, mostly in the floor, sort of embedded in the floor. And so the space just expresses the timber that it's built out of. And then, I mean, as a business owner, trying to get my staff back into the building, I have to say, I was really, really happy to have this exceptional uh, office space for them to come back to, to, you know, draw people out of their houses where they've been working for the last two and a half years, you know, and comfortable working there now. And, you know, and, you know, and we're still maintaining a hybrid approach and we have a lot of people that are still working hybrid, but, uh, you know, there are a lot of people coming back into the office and they're excited about, you know, having such a beautiful space to work in and, you know, the mission uh, alignment that it provides them, you know, they've, they're working here at PAE, a lot of them, because they believe in our mission. And now we have this building that, you know, that just embodies that. What's the difference between an enclosure, you're going to go do it, this office building or this whatever building in a high performance enclosure? What are you doing to make it that way? The control layers of a building are what make up the enclosure. And... I think that that type of terminology makes it much more efficient to discuss. A lot of words are thrown around regarding the enclosure assemblies and enclosure control layers or WRBs, and they kind of muddy the waters as to what you're actually trying to control. So I like the concept of control layers. A high-performance enclosure, which keeps air that you've conditioned on the inside and air that is unconditioned on the outside. It keeps water from the outside on the outside and it keeps the vapor from accumulating in the assemblies within the wall by allowing the walls to diffuse that vapor through vapor permeable membranes. And there are instances where you actually need to control or regulate that vapor so you don't get it into the wall, which would be more of a, a vapor retarder. 
There's also the control layer for uh, thermal regulation of a building. That's a very important one when it comes to high-performance buildings coupled with controlling vapor. You want to make sure that if you're reducing how these things move through a wall, because that's kind of the goal is to keep the outside out and the inside in, if you're reducing the permeability and how those various air, water, vapor, and heat can travel through it, you have to be very specific about how you do it. Otherwise, you can trap them in the wrong place, which causes degradation. We're focusing on high-performance buildings today. So when they're looking to design an enclosure for a high-performance building, what are the things that they need to be really thinking about to get it right? So the most difficult one and the most important one might not necessarily be the same, at least in my opinion. And it should be stressed. These are all, in my opinion, what I would consider the most important would be the air control layer. That can be achieved through a number of different materials Uh, at Walsh, trying to strike a balance between performance and value. We've used products, I don't want to say as simple as Tyvek, but it's been in the industry a long time, and their commercial wrap is proven technology. And it's something a lot of subs are able to use and install with a level of sophistication, even if they are themselves not a sophisticated sub. Whereas there are some membranes and self-adhering membranes, uh, liquid applied membranes that can improve the performance, but they require greater knowledge base and a little bit more of an investment in how you install them at this stage. But I think that the air barrier is probably the most important one and executing that correctly. uh, I think the, the critical part is the transitions between those membranes and the openings and things. And in a high performance building, that becomes even more critical because the thing that degrades a building is water. Losing air out of a building doesn't defeat its durability over time. It just really defeats its ability to be energy efficient. But air actually carries much more water than just water vapor through, say, a vapor control layer. Uh, It's significant orders of magnitude more. So if you can control air, you can keep water out of a wood building. The air control layer is the most important control layer, and uh, I think the most difficult control layer in a high-performance building is actually the thermal control layer, which, in my opinion, is when you're not trying to strive for in a high-performance, like a passive house level of performance, you can make mistakes in your thermal control layer, and they don't cost you because you still have energy to spend to dry out the assembly. But if you start making thermal bridges all over your building, which we do all the time to different varying degrees, if those become points of condensation because of the activity within the building and the low temperature outside of the building, it can cause a lot of hidden and undiscovered uh, (laughs) issues that, that can fester until all of a sudden you have a failure that is more catastrophic. And I would argue that's probably the more difficult one to address because a lot of those thermal bridges are coupled with structural members. Seismic's a big deal in the Pacific Northwest. We've got the Cascadia subduction zone earthquake is something that happens periodically, you know, every three to 600 years here in the Pacific Northwest. And we designed the building to be structurally strong enough to withstand that earthquake. So this building, uh, you know, is not one that will have to be taken down because of any earthquake that happens here in Portland. 
early on in the project, you know, certainly we were going to do a, a code or code better building and had hoped to do an upgraded seismic resiliency program. There are costs implicit in doing that, but what the team found by working together, right, not sort of taking seismic resiliency as a bucket and pro forma as a bucket or space needs as a bucket, by putting those things together, what we found is that a more seismically resilient building in this case is designed in this case, a more stiff building with a stiffer core that essentially moves less, right? It, it bumps into its neighbors less. If you imagine a crowded dance, right? It's sort of swinging its shoulders less into the person next to it. It actually let us make the building a little bit bigger. And that little bit bigger has real financial value. And what we found is that in that increased rentable area, there was enough return to pay for that increased level of seismic resiliency. And I think it's just a really nice vignette of the sort of story that in my experience often happens with these sort of integrated teams where we have the client, the designers, the architect, the engineers, the developers, all at the table trying to solve a shared problem with a shared vision to find that, I think, great solution. We gained about four inches on the west facade and four inches on the north facade that we could get that much bigger, you know, over five floors of the building. And that was about 200 square feet more of leasable space, which is income for the investors. That income was worth about $165,000, I think, of first cost to get the exact same return, basically. And the seismic upgrade cost about $150,000. So it was, it was a no-brainer. It, was, it paid for itself. And, you know, we got a building that, you know, we could confidently say is built to last 500 years. Steel, <laughs> concrete, uh, and wood are great structure, but they're also great thermal conductors. Wood less so, obviously, but those other two, they also have a lot of thermal bridging you have to try to address and run into that on projects quite frequently now as they try to get more and more high performance. What kinds of things do you do to address that thermal bridging? Sticking right with the basics, putting a pencil on a piece of paper and tracing each control layer and never lifting it, that's how you get around that now. If you think about how you draw details, a lot of people don't want to draw the hardest detail on a project. They'll cut through the more standard detail, which is maybe more common, but definitely not the one that's going to be the one where you have catastrophic hidden failure because that's only happening five or six times on the building or maybe 60 times, but the other detail happens 600 times. So picking where you cut the detail is an important thing from the beginning. Making sure you don't pick up your pencil when you're tracing your air, water, vapor, and thermal control layers. But as I was saying, from a thermal bridging standpoint, you really have to look at the structure and the best strategy after you've done your tracing, I've found, or I think that is out there, is to first, <laughs> I'm going to say a lot of uh, Joe Stebrickisms here, and we'll have to decide whether he sues me or not. But uh, you either <laughs> eat the sweater or you wear the sweater. And eating the sweater is you stuff insulation in all the cavities in the wall assembly. And that's how we've traditionally done it, I think, in construction. We have a lot of products now that allow us to put all that insulation on the outside. That's step one, but inevitably it's a high performance building. You're probably going to have solar sunshades cantilevering out. If it's an affordable housing, you may not have as many balconies, but if it's a um, senior housing project, 
inevitably they want private outdoor space. I mean, they're they're downsizing from probably larger homes where they had all this private outdoor space. So they really want a decent sized balcony to live on. And those balconies, when built out of, say, a concrete structure, that's just like putting radiator fins out in, in the world. And to put continuous insulation around those is difficult. Now you're not just doing a vertical face, you're actually doing a walking surface, another small vertical face, and then a ceiling surface. I mean, and then I'm not even going to try to get into the aesthetics of how that works because a lot of architects want those to read very thin. You know, they don't want them to be these thick, incredible masses. So then you start talking about are there structural thermal breaks Armatherm, I think, makes one. Uh, I'm not as familiar with all the manufacturers of those because, honestly, that type of technology is, it's not brand new, but it's definitely newer than, say, just cantilevering a, a steel member out of a building. There are a lot of modernist architects who that's how they made their hay and created an entire discipline of architecture and vocabulary in architecture out of cantilevered and very thin and and neat assemblies using the cutting edge technology of their time. Well, our cutting edge technology now has to get buried inside of things and not look like it's there, but still perform. Talk to me about windows and doors and and what, what some of the things you might do differently in a high performance building to meet those goals that you have. They don't really differ depending on the performance we're trying to attack with a building. What changes, if you're talking about a high-performance building, is how much the U-value of the assembly. Is the window a triple-glazed window? Is it double-glazed window, but it's a vinyl uh, frame, so it has a better U-value than, say, an aluminum frame that's also thermally broken? There are window manufacturers that we use that... They're big names in our our region. That's one thing about window manufacturing is it is, in my opinion, a pretty regional activity. You you have to find the window manufacturers in your area. One of those reasons is transporting that glazing over mountains. You actually have to help regulate the pressure inside of it so it doesn't blow out the glazing, which means some window manufacturers can be used in some areas. And if they're used over a pass, you have to accommodate that, which means you're doing some field repair to what they did to allow the uh, gases not to burst the window. But in a high-performance building, the only thing that we would do differently is the actual fenestration itself. The basic detailing that we use on every project is designed under the assumption that all windows do and will leak So our biggest fear is water getting into assemblies. That's the whole reason our quality department was born is of a failure on a prior project that was systemic. And it was because the concept that a window does leak and will leak was not necessarily built into how that detailing worked. So the rough opening wrap sequence is one of our, that gets into every project. We make sure whether it is one window in one small remodel, or if it's 500 windows in one building out of a six building complex, they get the same treatment that we assume the window will leak. So we always have a back dam. We always have an interior air seal. And that doesn't matter what the manufacturer of the window is. We always have those two things. Now, different manufacturers allow us to do other great things like 
pull fasteners out of the sill area completely and fasten through the back dam. Some manufacturers provide that structural capability within their frame. Part of our quality process is to verify that those elements are installed correctly, specified correctly, submitted correctly. Uh, shop drawings indicate them shown in the right direction versus in the wrong direction. And all of that is specifically just to keep penetrations away from the sill of a window. We try to isolate water from traveling. Believe it or not, water can travel behind WRBs. So if you have a small nick in a mechanically attached WRB, we've seen it travel as much as 10 feet from 10 feet away when we do window testing. Because we also, after we've come up with this great approach that captures water, assumes this window is leaking all its water through all its joints, even though it shouldn't, even though it's not designed to do that, assume that window's there for 50 years at some point, those seals fail, those, those joints get weaker, but no water will get into the wood structure of the building. The building will be there. They can replace the window and not the whole building. That window wrap sequence is designed around that concept and also the idea that you don't want water to travel behind the membrane into the opening, so we make sure that all sheds. Weather lapping materials and not reverse lapping. Reverse lapping is a four-letter word at Walsh. Uh, we don't do it. And when we have to, we use um, very strong adhesive properties for sealants to ensure that their adhesion will not fail prematurely. And you made a comment about specifications. And even though I'm a spec writer, I don't actually talk to my guests a whole lot about specifications. But I would love to hear from you. You know, Walsh gets a job. You're looking at the drawings and specs to bid the job or to get ready to build the job or whatever. Tell me some of the things you see in drawings and specs that are just not right. So I will be honest, and I will share some specifics, but I'll also first comment that part of the way Walsh does its work, and it is unique, don't get me wrong, we do a lot of negotiated work where, I mean, I think it's, it's, it's above 85% of our clients are repeat clients. So they know that the way we approach things is the way they want to build buildings. And one of those ways is we get involved at SD, we're involved before a spec is even written, usually in narrative form. And I, as often as I can be, I'm there weighing in saying, here are some of the products we have a great track record with. Here are some of the assemblies that we've uh, found are very durable, good, better, best. And I also like to just say, from our perspective and quality, since our primary motivation is to mitigate risk, there's acceptable, better, and best. And we never uh, suggest anything that would introduce undue risk to the project or to the building itself, really, or to us as contractors, because, I mean, that's kind of the role is to mitigate your own risk. So we get to weigh in on those specs. So when I'm cursing somebody, I'm usually cursing myself for not having weighed in early enough on those projects. But that said, a consistent thing that I find myself commenting and suggesting uh, refinement to I'd say the first one that's almost consistent everywhere is a window testing protocol, correct ASTMs and the correct AMA testing. It's never dialed correctly. <laughs> it's always needs some refinement. And it's usually because there's more than one type of fenestration on a project. It means there might be different testing requirements. I will say there's a company in town that we like working with a lot that it 
be a great resource for architects looking to try and dial that in. And QED labs, they do a lab testing of windows. They also do a lot of field testing. So they see a lot of what goes sideways in the field, but they understand how a spec should be written so that they can do the testing the way the uh, industry expects it to be done. Uh, Similar testing uh, is uh, pull testing on sealant joints. I almost inevitably see the default as structural glazing sealant, which goes on, you know, high-rise towers with curtain wall assemblies. That needs the rigorous testing that that testing protocol has within it. But when you're doing pull tests on a a four-story wood building, that same rigor introduces a level of cost that it really should be up to the owner how much they want to spend on that. It is a destructive test. So every test you do, if you do the first like 10 tests over the first thousand lineal feet and then one test every hundred feet after that or however it works, (laughs) you're repairing every sealant joint on the building. And that's not what the owner wants to do to verify that the sealant's working. They just want kind of a good survey of the building to say each substrate that the sealant was applied to was applied in the correct way with the correct primer and it is sticking. So let's get us a representative sample from a few different elevations and pull and see what happens. And if they all pass, we can have a pretty safe expectation that the rest was installed correctly. If one fails, we can try and suss out what the pattern is there. And I find myself weighing in on that also in almost every, we call them building enclosure coordination meetings, but we always pull the whole team together and we talk about the specs, the drawings, where things are a little out of whack with what we've had good experience with in the past versus what is an unknown going into the future. I had a question about what unique products do you use, you know, particularly when you're getting into things like lead projects or living buildings or things where you're really looking at the sustainability to find products, you know, that aren't on the red list or that that are, are considered sustainable but still is durable. Can you talk to me about how you feel about that? Or have you found things that work that maybe you wouldn't use on a building you weren't trying to reach some of those goals? We get to vet those things, and that's where we get comfort level with products. The way this comes back around to the red list for me is it is a semi-new stipulation. It's not something that's existed for 30 or even 20 or even maybe even 10 years in commercially available products. Living Building Challenge has a red list. There's about 780 chemicals that are on this red list that are not supposed to be put into living buildings. And so then there's a, a vetting process that has to go, that the team has to go through for every single material that goes into the building. It's a heavy lift and it's something that, that we have to do as a team and certainly our contracting partners uh, carried a huge burden in helping us wade through the documentation it takes to confirm that materials are compliant or find alternates that are compliant. It's hard to have a comfort level and track record with products that are trying to meet this new stipulation when they're removing chemical components that may have been something that created durability in the product, but also are hazardous to human health during the manufacture of the product. So I don't want to say that we should be making products that are hazardous to human health. That is not the goal by any means. But... I think a conversation 
deserves time regarding if the material is durable and the installation is sound, it doesn't off-gas, it doesn't render things friable and then become cancer. You know, if that product, once it's situated in a building, can last the tests of time, at what point do we draw a line and say, well, the red list says it can't have this one component, and it's because this component is linked to this thing down the line, and it's only present during the manufacture of the product. I'm not saying we shouldn't stop pursuing other avenues for products, but I think asking contractors, a traditionally conservative group of people, to try brand new cutting edge products and assume they're going to work is a it's a tough it's a tough sell. These things are sometimes embedded in really commonplace stuff. Uh, metal studs in a project can actually be a real challenge right now to find alternates or push through, knowing that at some point we need to change the industry without these sort of red list materials. And so it does have some pressures on certainly cost, both the cost of those materials to, to get them, but as well the time it takes to vet and verify. The great advantage is that as we do this more and more, we can sort of, as a group, put this in our back pocket, right? That's knowledge gained that we get to deploy on our future projects. And so those products will come to mind and be used uh, more easily and more readily. And the future buildings, even if they're not as aspirational as PAE, I think benefit from us seeing a reduction in the use of materials that contain those harmful chemicals. I just add that, you know, with the PAE building, one of the first moves in terms of materials is let's just have less of them. And let's make sure that the materials that we have are of really high value and they're expressed, they're beautiful, they're biophilic, they're functional. And if we think about, for example, the wood in the project, making sure that that's FSC certified, well-sourced, but also expressed within the building in its beauty so it becomes the finished material. It's also carbon sequestering and it's red list compliant. And so thinking about just ways to sort of multiply uh, the use of some of our materials and reduce the use that we're not putting more things in the building, which certainly has a, a carbon and energy impact, it has a, a red list impact. I think it's also just lends to a really honest architecture and some really sort of natural approaches to expressing the structure, to creating really well daylit spaces through big windows. Uh, having flexible space. I mean, those are all strategies that have been deployed for centuries, if not millennia. And they do drive at this question of what are the materials and the systems that we're using to achieve what we want to do. And sometimes that's just, let's use nature. Let's let the light in, let's let the air in, and not depend so much on the materials and the technology to create the building of today. So my favorite, one of my, I have two favorite questions in this podcast. One of them is the what drives you crazy at work question. Cause I always say what drives you crazy at work is something that needs to be fixed. Broadly in our industry, what's something that just drives you crazy at work? I'm going to use the term uh, an ineffective meeting. Um, <laughs> there are a lot of ways a meeting can be a waste of everyone's time, which is what gives meetings a bad rap. When in, in reality, it's the only way we can actually, like I said, solve a problem is to get people together to actually hear the issue, understand what the parameters are, and then throw ideas at the wall to try and figure out what sticks, what doesn't, and what is actually a, a sound, savvy decision to make for a project. 
meetings in general give give me a headache, but mainly it's because so many of them are not, they're poorly planned. They're not organized. They don't stay on schedule. So I I would totally agree with you there. Okay. You get the king of the, or the king of the universe, the master of the universe question. If you were the master of the universe and could make a change in our industry that everyone would just absolutely have to abide by and they couldn't argue with you, they couldn't change it, they'd have to do it your way, what would be one thing you'd really like to change? I would like it if the second uh, an installer in the field has that, should I or shouldn't I question in their head? They had to stop and push a button and it went straight to my phone and I could say, thank you for calling. Let's talk about your question. Before anything else has happened, anything else has gone on the wall, anything else has come off the wall, where are you, what are you at, and what's your question? I'd be busier than I am now, which is hard to fathom, but it would be the way I would love to do the job, is that even in the moment when you're questioning whether you're doing the right thing or not, there's always someone else on the team there to give you support or to tell you, oh, no, stop. Let's get a bigger group of people together here and talk about what you're seeing because what you're seeing, you shouldn't be seeing. Like, we don't have that button at Walsh. We have what we call a skin doctor for my components or the the assembly, the parts that I'm responsible for as a quality assurance manager, the envelope. We have somebody who actually is there looking at that and it's proven to be invaluable. That's my one wish. I don't want to waste other energy on other wishes. It would be if people would ask the question that, that's haunting them or may haunt them later, or that's just bugging them a little bit, no matter what, where it is on that spectrum. I want them to ask the question and not feel stupid for having asked it. <laughs> you know, what's funny about that, though, you made a comment um, that you would be really busy because people would have to ask those questions every time something gave them pause. But the thing is, is over the long run, you wouldn't stay really busy because they'd stop and ask the question. And they would learn something and they would never make that mistake again. Or they wouldn't have to question it again the next time they encountered it. So over a period of time, ideally, there wouldn't be a whole lot of questions. Well, I joke at work that if I'm doing my job right, I'm working myself out of a job. If I'm helping people find solutions that they don't know yet, or if I'm helping them learn how building science works to a certain extent, then the next time they won't have to ask me the question. They'll just know this is a better practice than that was, and we can afford to take the time to do it. (laughs) And eventually, I won't have a job. (laughs) Jake, as always, it is a complete pleasure to talk to you and see you, and I'll be waiting for my next invite to the farm. I'm jonesing for the farm and some um, baby William time. But thank you very much for taking time out of what I know is your insanely busy schedule right now to talk to me. I appreciate it. And I am ordering you to go on vacation, turn off your phone and have a great time. Thanks, Therese. This is time well invested. So if you would like to talk again, I would love to talk again. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and want to learn more, Visit rcat.com forward slash podcast to see photos, details, and more related project and product information that we discussed today. While you're there, take a look around rcat.com. For over 30 years, rcat has been the resource for AEC professionals to find the right products for their project. Try rcat and see how their tools can save you time and money and help you get ahead on your next project. 
visit rcat.com. That's A-R-C-A-T dot com. If you enjoyed the show, you can support us by subscribing, leaving a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts, and sharing this with your friends. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back to share more stories and lessons learned to help you navigate your next project.